Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT in Toronto, or elsewhere. Thank you for tuning in. The Indian farmers' movement remains steadfast against Narendra Modi's authoritarian neoliberalism and is inspiring people around the world. Joe Biden is refusing to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline. The Canadian Liberal government has been working in secret with the fossil fuel industry throughout the pandemic, and the Doomsday Glacier is melting, apparently. We'll discuss all this and more at length, and then Stefan will interview Emma McIntosh about urban sprawl and Highway 413 in Ontario. But first, Lauren wanted to make a comment about Jane Goodall, and Stefan wanted to make a comment about all the news he's about to be inundated by. Jane Goodall, the famous uh, biologist today, where apparently in at an event she was speaking at, or most likely a Zoom, she was speaking on, she was quoted as saying, climate change is actually a far more frightening thing right now than this pandemic. This pandemic will go away. And I find this really frustrating, as I'm sure many of you can imagine, because it's it's not that on some level she isn't correct. COVID will likely be eradicated within the coming decade, while climate change will continue to wreak havoc on all species for centuries and centuries going forward. But I still don't feel like this is a helpful discourse for us to wade into when we're over a year into, into COVID-19 and when so many people have been working so hard to make it clear that the best solutions for issues stemming from the pandemic are also solutions that can help us progress forward on climate. Like for instance, I personally don't know anyone saying, hey, let's pump the brakes on climate because COVID is still an issue. Everyone who's really meaningfully working on climate change is also working to alleviate the stresses of COVID and, and vice versa from my experience. And I just sort of feel like the climate movement has learned over the last decade that it isn't helpful to pull climate out and set it aside as its own issue that needs to be paid attention to before and above anything else. The best way for us to make meaningful change is when we sort of, when we weave climate change and climate solutions into all aspects of our life and bring to the forefront, those intersectionalities and the sort of like pan community dysfunctions and injustices that are like at the cause of and exasperate and perpetuate both COVID and climate. I don't know anybody who is arguing that climate needs to be put aside in favor of COVID. Most people who are savvy and are working on these issues are working on them in concert. And there's just like not a solution to COVID that exacerbates climate change exactly and it's not even like i'm sorry like i'm not even hearing from like the zero wasters that like oh no all of this all of the syringes like when not even the zero wasters are making a peep right now like we really don't need this from you ms goodall yeah yeah so my my bit is actually really quick it's to let people know that this friday uh bill c12 gets its second reading and if it doesn't get past second reading on this friday it's basically dead because everyone is currently planning for uh, an election triggered by people voting down the budget that the liberals will be putting in on Monday, or more likely it gets passed and then we see a fall election. But either way, time is running out for Bill C-12. And so that happens third Friday. Monday, we get the liberals' big budget, which we'll cover on next week's show. And then Thursday uh, is the Leaders' Summit on Climate, which Biden is hosting on Earth Day, which is next Thursday. 
And we expect to see a whole host of other sort of news coming out of that. We expect world leaders to say either ramp up their ambitions or or say a bunch of things that they're do- doing. I'm sure the liberals releasing their plan on Monday will ha- will include some notes uh, that will be brought up on Thursday. But yeah, anyways, so basically, if you care about climate change, the next week, big news, lots happening. So pay attention and check back here uh, every Friday to find out what happened. A few months before COVID-19 became a global pandemic, the Hindu nationalist leader of India, Narendra Modi of the BJP party, introduced laws that excluded Indian Muslims from official citizenship status. They even began building facilities in which to hold Muslims, and even the government may not have known what they would eventually decide to do with them. Modi's power partially stems from the violent sentiments of ethno-religious nationalism, and religious hate crimes started rising in India after he was elected for a second term. Modi's time in power has brought increasing media, political, and military repression, leading some progressives in India to declare that India's democracy has already crumbled, or is at least on the brink. There are even those arguing that Modi has become dictatorial, with an egoism and a greed for unquestioned power that requires ensuring the mainstream media does little but echo the ideas of the country's leader. There is, however, a huge democratic backlash currently underway in India, which has brought usually antagonistic groups together to rally against Modi's policies, and it has sprung from the three farming reforms that were rather undemocratically forced through Parliament last September. Even though the percentage of Indians who work in farming has been dropping steadily over the last decade, the amount of people currently earning their survival off of farming in India is still at least four times the entire Canadian population. These are men and women alike, and they produce a lot of the spices that we enjoy in Canada. More than half of them are in debt, and a huge number of them commit suicide every year. Monoculture experts from the United States were brought into India in the 1960s to initiate what became known as the Green Revolution, which allowed the country to begin producing a food surplus. This was achieved through using new kinds of seeds, huge plantations of rice and wheat, massive fertilizer and pesticide use, and new groundwater irrigation methods, all heavily subsidized by the government. Groundwater irrigation was particularly important, and it has become more and more expensive over the years as farmers have had to dig deeper and deeper wells to access the diminishing water reserves. The groundwater has thereby been depleted by growing rice in ecosystems that were too dry to support that kind of crop. This is only one example of the rising production costs that Indian farmers have faced since the Green Revolution, while their revenues have not kept up. This is why agricultural reforms have been discussed for decades in India, and why some sort of deal with the government is needed to support farmers to transition to different crops and to help them out of their debt crisis. But instead of working with farmers to develop a solution, the BJP unilaterally decided to pull government support for farmers, 
leaving regular people even more exposed to the pressures and the volatility of the global market. The farm bills that are being protested allow big businesses to contract farmers directly rather than having to purchase from the government-regulated markets in which middlemen help ensure fair prices. Private corporations could therefore use their power to erode the regulated markets until they no longer function. Farmers could then be exploited by powerful private interests with esoteric legal expertise, whereas before there was at least a guaranteed level of oversight that could be scrutinized and democratically influenced. So instead of strengthening the system that was set up to support farmers, however minimally, the government decided to allow private interests to begin bleeding that system dry. The government has also decided to allow distributors to begin hoarding staple foods in order to sell them at a higher price. There are even those that argue the Modi government is doing all of this as a favor to certain corporations who support the BJP. The argument in favor of the reforms is that farmers can now seek higher prices outside of the regulated markets, but similar measures have already been tried in certain states, and farmers' incomes in those places have fallen to among the lowest in India. Farmers therefore immediately began protesting these bills, and are closing in on four months of occupying major highways around New Delhi to force the government to repeal the laws. The protesters are largely from Punjab and Haryana, where farmers have the most to lose, having observed what has happened in other states in which markets have already been deregulated. At least 200 protesters have died so far, many from hypothermia, from sleeping in cold vehicles. Spokespeople argue that it is better for them to die in resistance to the laws than to allow the laws to kill them more slowly. Some have argued that the government has been waiting for the wheat harvesting season to come around, in order to show that the protests are dwindling, but now that the wheat harvesting season is beginning, farming families are coming together in community solidarity to help harvest each other's crops in order to ensure the continued strength of the protests. They are now currently planning to march to Parliament together in May. The government has been trying to suppress them through intimidation, violence, raiding newsrooms, taking down websites, cutting internet access, arresting journalists, and using police to break up press conferences. Since many of the protesting farmers are Sikhs from Punjab, the international Sikh diaspora has been showing great support for the farmers, especially in Britain, Canada, and the United States. Solidarity protests have been happening in these countries continually, since many people in the diaspora have family who will be directly affected by the laws. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is in vocal support of the farmers, and the city of Delta in BC recently voted unanimously to stand in solidarity with the protest movement. There is even a documentarian, Bedabrata Payne, working on a film about the relationship between the protesting farmers in India and white pro-Trump farmers in the United States, who have themselves had their livelihoods destroyed by the corporatization of agriculture. Payne argues that what is happening in India has already been tried in the United States, and surely anyone can see how global markets dominated by big business have introduced pressures that have been apocalyptic for American farmers. 
when small business is forced to compete with mega corporations that have international influence, local economies are forced to serve interests that have nothing to do with them, people lose their sense of purpose, and in many cases they begin to go hungry. It's significant that conservative farmers have grounds to support the protests in India because it widens the scope of international solidarity in opposition to private finance. By destabilizing local economies, concentrated wealth working internationally has helped authoritarian nationalists like Modi get into power. In addition to all this, farmers in India are among those who are going to be the earliest and hardest hit by rising temperatures from fossil fuel use. These rising temperatures could make it impossible to survive outside for extended periods of time in certain places in India if we fail to significantly lower emissions quickly enough. The climate crisis will also, of course, continue to lower crop yields. These protests are therefore a matter of global interest because everybody is globally connected now. And if we continue to allow private powers to dictate the flow of resources, we are going to have more racist, violent resentment. One thing the story does very clearly drive home, which I think is the, a universal learning, is the absolute requirement in leaving space for local leadership when developing systems. If the system that you are designing or running does not allow for folks on the ground to make it work for them, you are creating space for injustice. And this is especially obvious when you look at systems as large as the, our global economy, but I think it's true anywhere. An autonomous underwater vehicle named RAN has finally allowed scientists to take measurements of the water underneath the Thwaites Ice Shelf. The Thwaites Ice Shelf is also known as the Doomsday Glacier because it is very big, is melting very quickly, and it could trigger a cascade of melting in Antarctica as it weakens, which has disastrous implications for sea level rise. The scientists write, quote, our observations show warm water impinging from all sides on pinning points, critical to ice shelf stability, a scenario that may lead to unpinning and retreat. The findings mean that there is more warm water flowing around the glacier than had previously been estimated. Carly Casella writes for Science Alert that according to these measurements, the Doomsday Glacier should now be melting as much every year as it did between 2010 and 2018. A study recently published in Science Direct is showing that if the climate crisis continues unchecked, 
Endemic species on islands face total extinction. Endemic species on mountains face 84% extinction. Endemic species in the ocean face 54% extinction. And endemic species on land face 34% extinction. Endemic species are plants and animals that can only survive in a specific localized area. These are distinct from native species, which are plants and animals that are autochthonous in at least one region, but can also survive elsewhere. Climate change cause extinction risks for endemic species are three times higher than for native species, and ten times higher than for introduced species. The scientists who wrote this study estimate that introduced species may be unaffected or benefit from climate change. This is related to the homogenization of ecosystems that's happening around the world as biodiversity declines and disparate systems begin to resemble each other. The Category 3 tropical cyclone Saroja hit Western Australia on the 11th of April after killing at least 157 people in Indonesia and East Timor. It brought likely the strongest wind to hit that far south in over 50 years. Scientists have somehow estimated that cyclones of this strength have only gone this far south 26 times in the past 5,000 years. Saroja curved south after clashing with another storm, rotating around it, and being launched west. The state of Wisconsin has declared a state of emergency with hundreds of wildfires currently raging there. 365 wildfires have started in Wisconsin since January, where fires this year are already worse than for the whole of 2020. The National Guard has come in to help with these fires. Endemic species on islands face total extinction. Endemic species on mountains face 84% extinction. If an endemic species a species that is endemic <laughs> goes extinct on an island, it doesn't exist anywhere else. If a, if a species goes extinct on a mountain, it doesn't exist anywhere else but that mountain. So, so that's why it's such a big deal if we lose those species, because we know bi- biodiversity is like inextricably linked to, to the overall health of, of the biome or the planet that we live in. <sighs> Hearing statistics like that always really snap me back to the reality of the sort of like the, those, those deeply ecological and biological realities at play here. Um, that do not wait for politics and do not wait for policy to come into play um, and are sort of r- rapidly um, speeding up as, as feedback loops are triggered. And it, and it just sort of really drives home how little time we have left and how, how politics and, and ecology just, just aren't operating at the same rate here. And if these numbers weren't depressing enough on their own, my thoughts, for better or for worse, immediately go to the election in this country that hasn't yet been called, most likely won't be called for a few more weeks, potentially months. Um, like Stefan said, it, it could be contingent on, on the reception of the budget that's coming out next week. Again, that's the Canadian federal budget. But will likely happen, this election will likely be called before the leaves kind of like start to turn in the fall. And I'm reminded that we will likely, I obviously can't call anything, I'm, I'm not a political genius or an oracle, but it will, will likely get another Trudeau government, which when reflecting on the past five and a half or, or six years in power, the Trudeau government simply isn't moving fast enough. And, and we know this. And, and something that sort of drove that home for me today uh, was looking at a World Resources Institute uh, 
it, it's not even a study. It was just a compilation of, of statistics and they, and they put it out recently and it was looking at projected rates of annual greenhouse gas reduction. And it was comparing Canada, the U S 28 European countries and Japan. So you're looking at really wealthy nations and just sort of comparing the rates of reduction of those wealthy nations. And these numbers are based off of current targets and NDC commitments. So they're, they're pretty up to date. They're pretty new. And you've got the EU at an annual rate of 2.8% reduction. Uh, the U.S. at an annual rate of 2.8% reduction, and then Japan at 2.3, and then Canada lagging behind at 1.7. So even when you're comparing us to other wealthy nations, we're still dragging our feet in comparison and how depressing that is. And what that tells me is that Trudeau and Wilkinson really have to step up their game and bring stronger numbers at this Biden summit that's happening next Thursday on April 22nd. It's it's the Biden Earth Day climate summit. He's he's inviting all these nations and he's saying, hey, bring us not necessarily your new NDCs, um, but basically bring us your new climate targets. And we don't yet know what candidates are going to be. We're anticipating they'll be a little bit more ambitious than what was announced with, with the new legislation or, or the new plan that came out in December. But the expectation isn't that they're going to be leaps and bounds more ambitious. So what will likely end up happening is that coming out of this Biden summit, Canada will still be lagging behind because, yes, the liberals winning is preferable to a conservative government win. I mean, I'm, I'm not I don't want Aaron O'Toole as my prime minister. I don't anticipate he'd be any stronger on climate than, than Trudeau. But unless 350 Canada's sort of emergency alliance actually ends up pulling together the Greens and the NDP to, to fight for climate, I'm really nervous about what Canadian politicos will sort of uh, be able to give us in the next few years when it comes to strong policy and accelerated regulation. Because it's if the trend continues we're going to be like, we're, we're going to see those extinction numbers far, far sooner than we, than we would hope to. The very quickly about the bit about the Biden summit and the ways that Canada is failing, I think is maybe the simplest word is that one of the key conversations that's meant that is meant to be had is my understanding is the ways that these nations can sort of support the rest of the world to decarbonize, right? It's part of the conversation is about actually encouraging decarbon supporting decarbonization across across the planet. And yet one of the major ways that Canada funds fossil fuels is via the export uh, export development Canada. And most of the money is going overseas to support fossil fuels and other extractive industries. And so it's not even just that we are responsible for the amount of carbon and greenhouse gases that we are emitting here. We are also creating more emissions and funding more emissions throughout the globe. We need a sea change, an absolute sea change. And incrementalism is going to make us lose every cool animal and plant on some islands unless we completely change. Yeah. And I guess I'm just like, it's, it's this this study out of Science Direct is just, it's really, really, it's not good, but grounding ourselves in the, in the realities of these situations. Be, because I think so many of us who work within the movement, it's like we, we normalize moving slowly because we have to move slowly because politics is slow, because community organizing is slow and we have to be understanding and gentle with each other. And it takes time to bring people on side and to, and to build trust. But at the same time, we have this terrifying reality that's facing us that 100% that of endemic species on islands face total extinction and that 84% on mountains face extinction. And these, these numbers aren't false. They're, 
they're rooted in good science and they're gonna be like, these chickens are coming home to roost. And only chickens, they're increasing. All the cool animals, yeah. gone.
Thank you. God speed you, Black Emperor. That song was called Our Side Has to Win by God Speed You, Black Emperor. And that's a side of kindness, a side of mutual goodness, a side of selflessness, a side of truth. The Biden administration has decided to not yet order a shutdown of the Dakota Access Pipeline as it undergoes an environmental safety review. Chairman Mike Faith of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe said in a press release, quote, We are gravely concerned about the continued operation of this pipeline, which poses an unacceptable risk to our sovereign nation. In a meeting with members of Biden's staff earlier this year, We were told that this new administration wanted to get this right. Unfortunately, today's update from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers shows it has chosen to ignore our pleas and stick to the wrong path. Earth Justice Attorney Jan Hasselman said, quote, This pipeline is unsafe and operating in violation of federal law. Meanwhile, Energy Transfer is seeking to double capacity, which would make DAPL twice as dangerous. Yet the Biden administration's decision here is to do nothing. It's hard to see how we'll ever transition away from fossil fuels or show the rest of the world that we're serious about tackling climate change if we're just going to shrug and look away when the fossil fuel industry brazenly ignores tribal concerns and tramples our federal environmental laws and safety regulations. When Hasselman says the pipeline is in violation of federal law, she might be talking about the fact that it is currently operating without a complete permit, since it's currently under an environmental safety review. And Brooke Harper of 350.org said, quote, The Dakota Access Pipeline violates treaty rights and endangers land, water, and communities. The climate crisis is here. We can no longer afford to build polluting, dangerous fossil fuel pipelines and delay a just transition to 100% clean energy. In solidarity with indigenous water protectors, we call on President Joe Biden to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, Line 3, and all new fossil fuel projects immediately. If Biden wants to be a climate leader on the world stage, he needs to start at home. The American Legislative Exchange Council, known as ALEC, is developing a plan to fight Biden's evil socialist climate agenda by apparently trying to rally states against the federal government in some way. ALEC is a forum that gives industry groups the opportunity to write bills that are cut and pasted from state to state. They are called model bills, and sometimes the lawmakers forget to remember to erase the names of other states and other lawmakers from the bills that they're trying to enact in their own state. ALEC has drafted these cookie-cutter bills on things like weakening unions, opposing gun control, lowering corporate taxes, and restricting voting. They drafted a bill criminalizing protest against oil and gas projects, which was discussed in several states. 
Tony Evers, the Democratic governor of Wisconsin, signed an ALEC-inspired anti-environmental protest bill a year and a half ago. And Wisconsin, as we mentioned, is currently facing its worst wildfire season in years. Breach Media is reporting that the federal government of Canada, quote, formed a secretive working group with the country's most powerful oil lobby during the coronavirus pandemic, discussing reducing regulations, strengthening quote-unquote investor confidence, and creating post-pandemic opportunities for the industry. Seamus O'Regan, the Minister of Natural Resources, was part of this market crisis joint working group, with other senior government members and the CEOs of Enerplus, Petronas, Cenevis, Suncor, Chevron, and the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Seamus O'Regan recently said that the only way Canada will meet its emissions targets is through market incentives. This comes as the New York State Pension Fund is, quote, restricting investment in six Canadian oil sands companies because they have not shown that they are prepared to transition to a low-carbon future. So to go one step further in drawing a line between these three stories, one of the co-sponsors of the ALEC-inspired bill that passed in Wisconsin said it was inspired by the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. And you know, we've covered we've covered some of the more specific issues with the bill on previous in a previous episode, but it's hard not to come away from these stories with a deep concern for the level of which our governments are captured by the oil and gas industry. And in many ways, it's worse here in Canada than it is in the United States. You know, earlier today, I was listening to a webinar uh, that comes ahead of the Earth Day Climate Summit that Biden is hosting. And one of the presenters pointed out that over the past four years, emissions in the United States has actually decreased. So during the Trump presidency, emissions decreased by like 2% or something. Not a huge amount and not nearly enough, but like just doing nothing because of the increase of renewable energy meant that their emissions slightly decreased. And doing nothing at a federal level, incredible work is being done by activists across the country and, you know, to make things like coal uh, plants be history. But here in Canada, what we, what we saw, I think it was a comment today, we, you know, we record on Wednesday, what we saw was Environment Minister uh, Wilkinson called the fact that emissions rose in 2019 as, quote, really good news, simply because they didn't rise by even more. And so, you know, we have f- the last four years of saying all the right things uh, here in Canada, and yet emissions rise, and you know real things happened. Like they implemented a, car- a price on carbon during that time period, and yet we can't seem to slow down the our, our emissions rise. Whereas you know other nations are are, are seeing so much. So to me, this goes to show how much. Yeah, again, this is maybe beating. Uh, I don't know if I should say beating a dead horse on the show. Um, this is maybe you know going over something too many times, but. There's just so much work to be done and so much work that needs to get done. Yeah, I don't have much to add, um, just that I, I haven't read that Breach Media story yet, and I'm really excited to, and I'm really excited to see what Breach Media comes out with over the next little while. They're a, they're a brand new media um, 
agency, I guess, organization that's focusing on um, independent investigative journalism in Canada, in um, in so-called Canada. And and this was one of the first pieces they put out. So it's really cool to see um, work like this coming out in this country. But like, it doesn't even take, <laughs> you don't have to be an investigative journalist to know that cap and um the oil and gas lobby is is the strongest lobby in canada like i mean i have um uh because of my work i have this this really handy uh inside ottawa directory that the hill times puts out every year and they they give you a page where it's the most active organizations lobbying the federal government and the very first one is the canadian association of petroleum producers cap and and even within the top 20 in addition to being in in cap you also have um tc energy corporation which is is trans canada so like yeah this country is so inex we, we know this is so inextricably tied to oil and gas and the lobby is so powerful that it's no it's no wonder that it takes us so so long to get any meaningful climate policy pushed through and any meaningful um policy pertaining to indigenous sovereignty and indigenous rights uh we have such a long way to go, guys. What are we going to do? Seven, you just said that Canada's emissions are rising, right? Yes. Whereas didn't Lauren say earlier that they're going down? Not that they're going down, that they're projected to go down if the, if, if, if the, like, um, if the plans that have been put in place are followed through on the projected reductions were 1.7 annually for the next 10 years. And I will say that was 2019 that they increased 2020 might've seen a decrease, but that's COVID. We can't take credit for that. Yeah. So even those measly sad numbers, they're just projections. <laughs> Welcome back to The Green Majority. This is Stefan Hostetter, and we'll be jumping into my conversation with Emma McIntosh shortly. But first, a bit of context for this next segment, as I want to acknowledge the fact that we've been covering these developer-friendly decisions by the Doug Ford government quite extensively, and beyond the fact that we are a Toronto-based radio show, I want to explain why. Or, perhaps more specifically, what is universal and important about this kind of story. And the short answer is that development, and especially highways and the collateral sprawl, are the key to tackling climate change in an Ontario context. So much so that former Environmental Commissioner of Ontario, Diane Sachs, referred to urban sprawl as, quote, Ontario's tar sands. And in doing so, she pointed out the key six similarities between the two. The first, that both are main drivers of emissions. Second, both are a key economic sector, in Ontario this being development. Three, they have large donors. Four, these large donors have huge political power, which this conversation with Emma will only further show. Five, they, they come with significant environmental costs. And six, that they profit from business as usual, meaning that the less we do now, the more money that they will make. And I would take that comparison one step further and note that I think that we should be thinking about highways as fossil fuel infrastructure in the same way that we see pipelines. As at this point, 
any investment into new highways is one that further locks us into high-carbon transportation options. And while electric vehicles would help with that, there's simply no sustainable world that replaces every car on the road with an EV. We have to find other ways to move people, and we have to make communities that have everything you need in walking distance to allow people to enjoy that reality. It's the only path forward. And so for those of us who are not directly impacted by pipelines running through our backyards, we need to do our part and stand up to these kinds of plans as they are of equal import. I feel like a bit of a broken record on this, but COVID-19 puts us in a unique position to rethink commuting and sprawl in a real and significant way. You know, there's simply no need for millions of people to hop into their personal vehicles and drive into a downtown core to sit at a computer for a job which they just did at home for the past year. Employees have stated their interest in, at the very least, a hybrid model, and studies have shown that moving from a one-hour commute to a 10-minute walk has as much impact on someone's happiness as falling in love. The culture of people being stuck in traffic on highways served no one except for the people who want you to be so exhausted at the end of the day that all you want to do is listen to advertisements and shop. And this is our moment to put an end to it once and for all, which requires new ways of thinking about turning suburbs into complete communities, massive improvements to walking and cycling infrastructure, and definitely an end to new highways that were designed with old commuting culture in mind. The following conversation specifically focuses on new revelations on Highway 413, but as we note in the interview, there are more highways and more planning decisions on the way that benefit the same people. I am here with Emma McIntosh from the National Observer, friend of the show. Welcome back, Emma. Hello. It's good to be back so soon. I know. I am both excited and dismayed because excited because we get to talk and dismayed because I feel like every time we talk, it's yet another odd thing that our wonderful government is doing. Yeah, I kind of feel like the Grim Reaper of the environment, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, Emma's here. What did, what did, what happened now? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's next to get paved over. So we've covered this highway a few times in the past, but to frame it out for people who maybe missed those earlier conversations, can you sort of tell us what makes this highway contentious? Yeah. So the big top line thing with highway 413 is basically that according to one study done by a previous government, it would save drivers less than a minute. Its price tag right now is estimated to be about $6 billion minimum. A lot of people say it's closer to $10 billion. That's a billion with a B, by the way, not a million, a billion. And then it would also just go through a lot of environmentally sensitive area. We're talking like 400 acres of the Greenbelt, 220 wetlands, the habitats of 10 species at risk, like 2,000 acres of farmland. It's a tough argument to sell, plus with everything we know about induced demand. And like the idea that new roads don't necessarily solve traffic problems, there, there are questions about whether this is the best way to solve Toronto's traffic issues. So it's become quite controversial. Yeah. 
Honestly, what's kind of surprising from my standpoint is the saving 30 seconds and for $6 billion really actually got more under my skin than anything else, especially given how much funding has been removed from Toronto Transit. You know, like tell that to someone who's crowded on a bus going up to Finch Station that we have $6 billion to save some people 30 seconds, but you still get to be on a crowded bus. No, I hear it's a bit maddening. Like this thing is is so old also, depending on who you ask, it either originated in the 90s or the 2000s. It like depends on what article you reference or what government document, but one of them indicates it's like 2002. So I asked my mom what I was doing in 2002 because I was so small of a child that I was not sure. And it turns out I was in senior kindergarten and she pulled out some photos of me from the time and it was horrifying. So thank you for that, Doug Ford. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, this thing has been going on for so long and the price tag is really high. Um, the government does contend that it would actually save half an hour. And they've kind of made some interesting arguments around that. It's hard to know which estimate is correct. Either way, I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of opinions on, on whether other factors might be important as well. And especially, as you mentioned, deduced demand, you know, you've seen time and time again, we won't get too wonky in this conversation, but you've seen it. Anyone should just Google sort of Atlanta's experience with their constant expanding of highways only to experience more and more and more crowded laneways. It really has not been proven that more highways actually decreases time. Just throwing it out there. But that's not actually what the conversation is about. The conversation is actually about why are they doing this? If everyone is so unhappy about this project, which is like quite clear, it's really not a very popular project in many places. The question would be why? And in our previous conversations, we sort of talked about the influence that developers have had on this government, or at least the ample ways one could perceive developers having influence on this government. And this seems to follow that trend. So you, along with, I believe it was the Toronto Star and the Hamilton Spectator, collaborated on a report. What, what did you learn? Yeah, yeah. So I worked with Steve Beust from the Hamilton Spectator and Noor Javid from the Star. We're kind of calling it like a tour star observer thing for brevity's sake, but really an all-star team. And what we wanted to do was answer the question of why. Like if... If, you know, a growing number of like local councils aren't into it, if citizens aren't really feeling this so much, like who wants it and who benefits? Because there has to be someone, right? So what we did is we looked at who owns land around the road of the highway. And I'm not talking like an acre here and there. I'm talking like a hundred acre tracks or more, like really large plots where you could potentially develop. And we also looked for plots of land owned by some of the developers that kind of fit within those guidelines. And we found that eight very major prominent Ontario developers own thousands of acres along the route of this highway. It's not, you know, a full picture. This is really kind of a snapshot of, of pieces because a lot of developers don't own land under their main company name. There are a lot of subsidiaries. They, they break it down that way, not, not to hide things just for the sake of like keeping things separate for business purposes. So there might be more that we couldn't find, but that's what we did find. And then we looked at other connections these developers might have to the foreign government, usually like through conservative lobbyists uh, who have ties to the government. And then we looked at how much they donated to the Ford government, to the PCs, to Ontario Proud. And I mean, it was not super surprising given what we what we've already talked about on the show before but i think i think it was good to see it all laid out 
we found that about $813,000 in donations have flowed from those developers and their families to the PCs and to Ontario Proud. We found that four of them employ lobbyists who are conservative insiders. Three of them actually employ the guy who ran Caroline Mulroney's 2018 PC leadership campaign. She's now Doug Ford's transportation minister. So she's making big decisions about this highway. And a couple of them also hired Amir Tula, who was Rob Ford's chief of staff. And Rob Ford, as we know, is Doug Ford's brother. So there are all these connections that they have. We even found one case where one of the developers took Doug Ford and PC MPP Stephen Lecce, who's now the education minister, he took them to a Florida Panthers game in his private luxury box uh, in December 2018. Now, spokespeople for Ford and Lecce say that they paid for their own tickets. Personally, I didn't know that you could buy a ticket to a box, but you, you get the point. There are a lot of connections between developers and the Ford government. That's not abnormal. A lot of industries try to lobby and try to donate to get access, to get politicians who they can become friendly with and who can influence policy. But I think it's notable that when we asked the government if these donations and lobbying played a role, they didn't deny it. They didn't answer that question at all. Yeah. And is there any sort of estimates as to how much value is added to these developments by the existence of this highway? Like, is, has anyone done sort of modeling as to knowing what kind of value adds you could expect? Yeah, I think that's honestly a really key point. To be honest, it's really hard to come up with like a big overarching figure. Uh, it depends on like when the developer bought the land near the highway. We know that access to transportation, like a highway drives up the value. Like that makes a lot of sense. And we also know that this is like a longstanding practice in Ontario and, and in a lot of places. Developers buy up land on the outskirts of cities that is zoned for agricultural use and nothing else. And they, they're gambling that they can convince a government to change the zoning one day. And the second that that zoning changes, it becomes a lot more valuable. Add in a highway, that's another factor that can make it a lot more valuable, right? Now, we know uh, that there are a couple examples where like this has happened and the properties have become more valuable, but like, because I, I don't want to give you too specific of a number, but what I can tell you is that it's a lot. It's definitely a lot off the top of my head. You could probably buy up a piece of farmland 10 years ago for $25,000. And, and then now if it's zoned the right way and, and it's near the path of this highway, it might be worth closer to like a million an acre. So that's like a scale of money that you and I <laughs> don't yeah. really work with that often, but it, it's a very lucrative business when it works out, you know, and I don't mean to imply like anything nefarious. They're within their rights to lobby governments and to ask for these kinds of things, but it's up to the government to decide whether they want to do it. And, you know, yeah. that's where this whole thing comes in. Yeah, exactly. And I, I guess it also should be noted that it's this is not the only highway that they are trying to push through. Off air, we've sort of chatted about this a, a secondary highway that they're also pushing for that gets a little less attention, but is perhaps even more environmentally dangerous. That's true. There is another highway project that no one ever talks about. Well, okay, people do talk about it, but it's less less popular in Enviro circles to discuss. It's called the Bradford Bypass. Some people also call it the Holland Marsh Highway. And so that would kind of extend closer to like Lake Simcoe, kind of the, the northern reaches of the GTA. 
And personally, I hadn't really heard much about the Holland Marsh before this. So if, if you haven't, allow me to fill you in. The Holland Marsh is part of the Greenbelt. It is very, very fertile soil. Some of the best farming soil in Canada is actually called Ontario's vegetable patch because all of the great crops that we grow there, um, that's why it's protected because it's so sensitive. And really, it, it's like a very ecologically important area. So previous governments took a look at this highway idea and they were like, eh, it kind of seems like not a great spot. The Ford government revived it and, and now here we are. Pretty much it, it's all happening along the same track as the 413 kind of simultaneously. Like the 413, the Ford government is trying to speed up that development and do a streamlined environmental assessment. And like the 413, but maybe a little less advanced, people are starting to be a little more critical of it. So for those of us trying to keep up and carry forward and follow along with these apparently now multiplying stories, what should we be paying attention to? I think everyone's eyes right now are on Ottawa. And that is because there's a fun mechanism in the rules where if you don't like what Ontario is doing with the environmental assessment, you can ask Ottawa to step in. And so uh, a bunch of environmental charities made that request earlier this year. And now the federal government is considering it. And we're expected to find out in May whether the feds will step in and conduct their own environmental assessment of um, the 413 and the Bradford bypass. Kind of, we, we might find out at the same time, it's unclear, but the request was made at the same time. So even though that isn't like a nail in the coffin kind of thing, that would slow down the process a lot. And with developments like this, time like literally is money because you can't, like the longer things get held up, the less sense they, they make. So it, it might end up, being the thing that makes it not sustainable for either or both of these projects. But we just don't really know. The feds might decide that this is not something that they want to wade into. But that's, I think, where the story is going next. Once we find out what's happening there, we'll have a better idea of what's happening after that. And if Ottawa isn't stepping in, Ontario has said that it wants to start doing early works on those projects later this year. So things could move very fast. <laughs> right now, we're kind of in the calm before the storm. Right. Thank you so much, uh, M. McIntosh from the National Observer. We'll have you back uh, to let us know when the next time we're going to pay something over is, which is probably next week. Let's be real. Next time, I'm just going to sing Joni Mitchell. Great. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.